0: This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowships. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your speaker today. We thank you for listening in on our podcast, and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today.
1: Purging was called the little death. It preceded the big death, crucifixion. Even the tension of awaiting the first blow is cruel. The body is rigid. The muscles knot in tormenting cramps color drains from the cheeks, lips are drawn tight against the teeth. As the whip descends, the chains fan out across the back, and each link cuts through the skin and deep into the flesh. The weights crash with bruising force into the ribs and curl bitingly around the chest. When a man is scourged, there is pain beyond the memory of pain. Sweat bursts from the brow and stings the eyes. At each stroke of the flagra, a victim's body twitches like a beheaded chicken. The second stroke patterns the back and half of the chest with a V-shaped network of small cuts. Only the Son of God could hold back the high-pitched wail of unbearable agony. The very juice of life is torn away with every lash. There is only the blinding burning pain as cruel whips whistle again and again through the air and across the back and shoulders. The philagra can flay a man alive. Under the Hebrew law, the strokes were limited to 39. Roman punishment was not so limited. There was only one rule for the lictor who scourged a man about to be crucified. He must not die. A spark of life must be sustained for the agony on the cross. Men have bitten their tongues in two under such beatings. Only blessed unconsciousness could bring relief. The limp body of a victim was cut away from the post. His wounds were washed but not otherwise medicated. The next step was the parade to the execution ground. Roman politicians always liked to make examples of condemned men. The long, slow parade along public streets was designed to serve as a warning to others that Rome dealt quickly and mercilessly. A centurion usually served as the executioner or carnifex servorum. While four soldiers held the prisoner, he placed the spike, five-inch spike, in the dead center of the palm of the hand. A skillful, experienced blow would send it through to the wood. Four to five more strokes would hammer the spike deep into the rough plank, and a fifth turned it up so that the hand could not slip free. A small projection, resembling a rhinoceros horn and known as the sedile, fitted solidly through the crotch this was fitted so as to take the weight off of the condemned man's hands, and then a nail was driven through each foot. It was a death reserved for slaves, thieves, and traitors. The wounds in the hand sent fire down through the arms, fainting only relieves temporarily. It is darkness and pain, and then pain and darkness. The pain in the back, arms, hands, and feet, and crotch is a dull, throbbing, horrible, endless pain. The pain builds up it multiplies, it is cumulative, and there is not a moment of respite. The cross is planted so that the greatest amount of sunlight will pierce the prisoner's eyes. Below the curious weight, fascinated by the torture, the gruesome scene is played out slowly. Dying should be a private thing, not a public spectacle. There is something obscene about having a mob of people standing around waiting for you to die. Then the thirst begins. The lips are dry, the mouth is parched, the blood is hot, the skin is fevered. The greatest of all needs at the moment is a drop of cool water. Water is denied. At the foot of the cross, the death squad drinks in the presence of a dying man to add to his mental torment. The sun shines directly into the eyes of the crucified. Even when the lids are closed, a red glare penetrates. The tongue thickens. What once was saliva, is now like unloomed wool. Swelling begins in the hands and the feet. The sedile digs deeply into the genitals. It is impossible to turn, to change one's positions. Muscles begin to twitch. The real horror is only beginning. What has happened until now is child's play. One by one, the muscles of the back gather in tight, knotty cramps. There is no escaping them, no pulling them out, no massaging hands to ease them away. They move across the shoulders and into the thorax and down into the abdomen. After two hours on a cross, every muscle in the body is locked in knots and the agony is beyond endurance. Men shriek themselves into insanity. The pain and symptoms are identical to tetanus, lockjaw, or a state of a muscle when undergoing continued contraction. Man with all his genius has never devised a crueler nor more agonizing death than that of tetanus, the slow steady contraction of every muscle. Death by crucifixion makes the agony last as long as possible and each hour is an eternity. At times the cramps make the neck rigid and the head is held flush with a vertical beam. A man longs for death and it is his only ambition. There are flies, insects, and yelps of dogs with the smell of blood in their nostrils. Birds of prey, scavengers of the skies, circle lower and lower. Prayers seem to mock a man, but you either pray or curse. As the hours pass, the tiny blood vessels which feed the nerves will be squeezed flat, and with the lack of circulation comes a numbing paralysis. A new agony develops for those who linger on the cross. It is the agony of the mucous membrane on the cross there is no end of suffering it is only the manner of suffering that changes and the degree that changes as the hours passed soldiers were inclined to hasten death they began breaking bones standing on a ladder a practiced legionnaire would swing the mallet in a short arc and shatter the right femur the thigh bone instantly a second sharp blow would shatter the left these were new pains the mucous membrane that thin slippery tissue that lines and lubricates much of the human body dries on the cross to the consistency of gravel and scrapes the tender tissues of the anus they tear at the tortured throat they lie like stones in the sinuses and they rip layers of tissue from the eyes every time the pupil is moved or blinks could there be more intense suffering this side of hell most condemned man die nude Christ was crucified. He died the most brutal death ever devised by man. He took my place. It was my sin that sent him there. Jesus Christ died the most thorough death ever devised. It was designed to allow the slow death erosion of cell, muscle, emotion, bone, tissue, mind, spirit, blood, and heartbeat. Thus the victory of the resurrection is the most thorough victory Ever recorded. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. No further sacrifice for my sins is needed. Jesus paid it all. And I was thinking that one step further than this is that. Um 2 Corinthians 5:21 says that he became sin and that is where I believe the the true spiritual agony was for him because as he became sin he was separated from God, God turned his face and he was true, to, you know, imagine knowing holiness as your only existence and then you're separated into torment and he actually became sin. And um Steve and I, five years ago, attended a Resolve conference, and we heard a pastor speak on Mark 15:34, And it says, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, why God? My God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he, there was probably 5,000 people in the auditorium, and he screamed that out. Like someone dying on the cross. And it was the most awful. It was this death silence in the whole auditorium. You could have heard a person breathe because everybody realized the reality of what Christ was experiencing at that moment absolute separation from his Father. And um, he actually called it the scream of the damned. It's how the men cried out when they were crucified. So this scream delivered me from hell. He screamed so we can sing and we can serve. And so when you sit back and you think about, you take a glimpse over your life, and you recall the sin that you've, you know, that you've committed, do you believe he has forgiven you of all that? most of us would say yes and then I would say how dare we hold grudges against each other and that's what really struck me about this I'm like my God Lord we act like we have a right to hold grudges be cruel pay people back and Jesus did all this for us and so my prayer is that our body grows in love and unity it's more important to me that we grow that way than that we add people every week and we have a full house and if we're not truly loving each other and leading people to this cross so that they understand what christ did perhaps we're not presenting salvation as he truly intended it to be so it's a very fitting story for communion when you realize what we are doing communion to remember this.
0: Our passage this morning is out of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. And those of you who are with us online, we have a Passover table set up today with four cups, with uh, juice symbolic for the blood of the Passover. And we also have a jar of bitter herbs. And of course we have the bread that will be broken as a symbol of Christ's body. And if you are interested in seeing the historical details of the Old Passover and how it converts to the New Covenant Passover, uh, please download the slides for this particular message. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There is an enormous amount of the new covenant packed into these these verses. So when we hear the, the term, the label, leaven, I want to ask you guys, what, what is it that comes to your mind when, when you think about the difference between being leavened and unleavened? Well, could one of you ladies explain to us exactly what the process is of leavening bread versus not having bread that is leavened? Okay, so what do you guys put in the flour to make it leaven? So you put yeast into the bread and it causes the bread to go from flat, mats to nice and fluffy, kind of puffed up. Leaven is actually one of the words that is used in the Old Testament for pride, to be puffed up, to add to it's also where we get in the new testament which now we use this term with chemical addiction as addiction which means to add to creation to add to something that is unnecessary so someone who is addicted you are adding to your life something that really is unnecessary it it doesn't in many cases even profit you anything leavened bread does not really Profit you at all. In fact, it usually causes your system to go off balance and you gain weight, and oftentimes you get yeast infections, and it just throws the whole chemistry of the body off. So, the unleavened bread is always the safest to eat. But that was not a law that was put upon the people. But that's the science behind leaven and unleaven. And as we're talking about here, this leaven that is being referenced in this passage is wickedness. It's arrogance. It's, it's pretty much everything we possibly could think of that was displayed around the cross of all those people shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. These were leavened people, arrogant people, puffed up people who were trying to crush and flatten the very life of Christ. And the whole process of being flattened for the sake of Jesus Christ is exactly the will of God. God wants us to function in our unleavened new creation. We are crushed. We are leveled, flattened for the sake of living the life of Jesus Christ. We are not supposed to allow that crushing to perplex us to the point where we cannot live the Christian life. And that's where the mandates of the scriptures come in and say, you might be insulted, you might be persecuted, you might be distressed, but you are not to be perplexed, confused. But most of us are. Because we don't understand that Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, Not as old leaven as puffed up arrogant people who are literally accusing others of sin while they are of sin themselves. This is a very holy celebration. If anyone here this morning or who is listening who is in the process of saying crucify someone while they're saying I want to experience the actual benefits of the unleavened life of Jesus Christ, may God forbid you for taking communion this morning. And I am serious. Anyone who is running around saying, crucify your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your friend or your enemy, while you are wanting to partake of the unleavened righteous life of of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest form of hypocrisy in the world today. You are one of those people who are running around the crowd while they are taking Christ to the cross showing your anger and your venom and saying crucify this Christian. It's beyond hypocrisy. So when God told the disciples to make it firm that they should not celebrate the cup with hypocrisy. It is like mixing your own blood with the blood of Jesus Christ. It is no longer unleavened. The only way you're going to get unleavened blood is by the blood of of Jesus Christ which means there's no sin in his blood that causes him to puff up and be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This is a critical passage for us believers to embrace. But there are people in this room who are not to take communion Unless they know that they know, they are not going to crucify while they want to experience the blessings of crucifixion. Jane and I take this and took this, even today, so seriously that we pleaded with God to make sure that we were right with everyone that we knew, at least from our standpoint, our point of view, our hearts. Because we wanted to be able to truly be able to embrace this communion cup for what it was meant for as a celebration to say you don't need to function in wickedness anymore. And if there is anyone that you are not reconciled with in your heart and God is bringing conviction upon you to reconcile with that person, you do it. Because if you you mock God, when God says, I shall not be mocked, this is the perfect way to mock God. To partake of this bread or to partake of the cup while you're running around crucifying someone. God wants you free. God wants you to live the exemplary life of forgiveness to your brother and your sister and your mother and your father and your cousins and your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Embrace those who your flesh does not like. Now let's talk about the details of should I take the cup this morning? You do not have to run off and go and make sure that you reconcile with someone before you take this cup your heart just needs to be right and willing to do so that's the difference or you're going to be waiting a very long time because a lot of people you never can get to it's your heart that has to say I am free I have released this person I give them forgiveness because you have given me forgiveness the other thing that Jesus through the Holy Spirit reminded Jane and I of today and the past few days leading up to the Passover is two things. Number one is Satan is going to do absolutely everything he can to not have body members partake this morning. And we watch some people drop one by one for some reason or another. Two. We understand that there's a preparation. So last week when I said prepare yourselves for communion, last night when I sent out that text to say tomorrow is New Covenant Passover, you should do absolutely everything within your human resources to preserve yourself in the process for the New Covenant Passover. But we don't. A lot of things that Satan puts in our pathway are put there. See, we need to understand that. They're put there. Attitudes in your mind against someone are put there. Satan is an accuser of the brethren. He, is a, he wants you to say, crucify him. But the thing we forget is this. What you do unto the least of these my brethren, you do unto me you see satan puts those things in the pathway because we don't have to drink everything all the afflictions that pass in front of us we don't we should be asking god if this cup can pass before me but we also should be saying thy will be done but jesus had to drink from this cup every form of sorrow every form of physical illness every backache, every footache, he had to drink from that cup so that we wouldn't have to drink from every cup. Some of those drinks God does ask us to drink. Sufferings. The Passover is the Old Testament act of celebrating God's liberation of his people. Number one, the death of all firstborn humans and animals During the time of the ten plagues, the Lamb took the place of the firstborn. Now I think we have read the passage enough to know that God staged his warnings and he wanted Pharaoh to get the message on the first plague. And each plague became more and more symbolic of the crucifixion. Every single plague is leading up to the ultimate sacrifice of the crucifixion. Losing the firstborn. Where God himself would have to pay this cost of losing his firstborn. And here a Passover is being offered to the children of God so that they would not have to lose their firstborn, as would be required of God himself. The enemy himself, Pharaoh, was the symbol of Satan. He was the symbol of the Antichrist. God's giving these stages of these ten plagues, which are literally replicated again in Revelation in the final days, in one fashion or another getting to the point of talking about that final sacrifice again. Well, see, Jesus is not going to give his life again. It had already been done. And Satan's up for a surprise, because, see, he still thinks this is all in play. And it's not in play. Victory has already been had. It's just that the final fourth cup has not been drank from. And we're going to talk about that fourth cup today. I'm sorry, and I hope I don't insult any pastors by saying this, but I am going to say it. The church has cheapened communion by providing one cup. And we kind of do it in a quick 15 or 20 minutes. When it was a full meal. And there are so many Hebrew messages in a meal that if you cut out all those pieces and bring it down to one piece one cup we don't understand exactly what every single one of those cups was meant for that is not the biblical model every single one of those cups is very very important to understand And we need to take a look at it. Number two, the celebration of their freedom from Egypt. Egypt is the symbol of the land of Satan. Egypt is the symbol of the unsaved person. Egypt is the symbol of our flesh that is condemned and that is going to go to the pit of hell. If we do not receive Jesus Christ and have full redemption that is what Egypt is symbolic for and we were and are completely set free from the land of Egypt number three once freed from slavery the Israelites were to have a feast each year in remembrance of this act of grace now the act of grace being the blood was put on the doorposts so as this this angel of death would come by the angel of death is repelled by sacrificial blood it cannot embrace it it cannot come close to it it's repelled by sacrificial blood so the spirit of death could not get into that doorway it could not pass through It could not enter in or cause death that is very critical but at the same time, God himself was going to require the death of his own son. And of course we know that God did not soften the heart of Pharaoh until when? As Soon as Pharaoh lost his firstborn, it wasn't Pharaoh who changed his mind. If you go back to that passage and read it very carefully, you're going to read something almost mind-bending. God softened his heart. You're going to read another passage a little bit further in where it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he came after the children of Israel. You see, even the choices of the enemy for the purpose of prophecy was controlled by God. This thing was all set up. The end times is all set up. Judas was all set up. This was not a confused man that lost the edge. He was assigned to this, and that's exactly what Jesus said if you carefully look at those scriptures. Do what you have to do, Jesus says to Judas. You do it. You see, we have the tendency to make things too human and we forget not that this is symbolism but this is the message of truth that's being given to us throughout all the Bible it's repeated this lesson is repeated over and over and over again seventy years after Christ died marked a defining moment in the history of Judaism the Roman armies destroyed the temple This caused the people to transfer their temple beliefs from a building to a human body. Now I don't know if that strikes you at all, but I have never been able to read the passage in Corinthians where it says, For your body is the the temple of the carnage of mankind. Your body is the temple of your self-life. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's why I put that scene at the end of that video clip of having the temple torn in two, having the, having the steps break down, having that, that delet destroyed, having the, having the veil ripped is because even at the moment where Jesus took his last breath, God shook the foundation of that temple and he ripped the veil to say there is nothing between my people and me anymore. But guess what they did? They went right back and patched up those steps, right back and put those pillars back up, and went right back. And tried to get things right back to where they were before. And if that's not us not embracing the power and life changing transformation of those four cups. Then I don't know what is. So what does God do in his creative ability? He uses the very enemy, the New Testament symbol of Satan. And that is Rome. Rome will be at the forefront again. That's hard to believe when it's the most poverty stricken country in the world or one of them. But it will. If God says it will. So he uses Rome to literally destroy this temple. Why? You're looking at it. You see we have this tendency to believe in the symbol and we forget the power thereof. God destroyed the temple so that a transition of what God said for the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't need pillars. We don't need fancy church buildings. We don't need to have reverence for objects. We need to embrace the reverence of what the object is to symbolize. That's how it works. Now, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? That temple is, to God, to Jesus, certainly to the Holy Spirit, the building for the holiness of God. Oh, we have completely forgot holiness. I'm telling you, the church is not into holiness anymore. I know that there are groups, small groups out there, that they believe in the holiness of God. It's not a holiness movement again. They believe in the holiness of God, and it literally indwells your body. And you have inside you the 100% fulfillment of holiness. But that is not the average thinking for the average Christian, even the indwelt type, who are true believers. No, we say crucify people while we take the bread. Such mockery. I know this is just matzo bread. I understand that. But I'll tell you what, there's been times I've taken communion that I could hardly swallow it because I knew it was in hypocrisy. And to get that grape juice down, one time when I was taking communion in Denver, I almost threw up. Had nothing to do with juice. Had nothing to do with that bread. It was God saying, you are holding aught against a brother. How could you do this? How could you take this? When there's a clear mandate with communion, communion means to process oneness, to become one. How could you want to celebrate my oneness with you when you are at aught with your brother? Exodus 12, verses 1 through 2 tell us about the feast marked a new year and a new beginning for Israelites. Now in April, we're going to do a full-on Passover. We're going to have a meal together. It's going to be a feast. We're going to fully celebrate. We're going to include as many details as we possibly can of, of the original Passover. But we're going to do it in that upper room format, reclined, covering all the details like Jesus, but Jesus did a beautiful job, of course, of showing the disciples here is the New Covenant Passover, the way the New Covenant Passover is done. And that's what we're going to attempt to do once a year. Verse 5 talks about the male lamb, and its first year was taken into the home of of the uh, 10th of Nisan, 10th of their first month. While in the home, it was closely inspected to see if there were any blemishes or disfigurements. If it was without defect, was sacrificed on the 14th of the first month, which would be like our January. Now, how come we didn't like sacrifice female lambs? How come, uh, seriously, I'm, I'm just not trying to tease anyone. I'd really like to know how come it is stated that 99.9% of the entire Bible is written to men. You want to know why there's a gender-friendly Bible that was put together? Because of what I just said. It's provable. Why they spent millions of dollars of actually putting that gender-friendly Bible together, and now I've been told they're spending millions of dollars in advertisement to promote it. Why? Because of the leader. The ox. The leader of the home. The leader of the temple. He who is in first place is he who gets the rights of those who are in first place. You see, women are to be protected. Women are to be covered women are to be washed with the word the scriptures are clear if any of those of you out there who are doubting what I'm saying that one of the greatest mandates given to a man in the Bible the new covenant portion of the word is what men what does it tell us to do with our wives love them as Christ loves the church and then Wash them with the Word. See, it doesn't say, women, go wash yourselves with the Word. But the Word cleanses and washes and purifies. God said it does. And God gives it to the head of the house to wash over the women. The women are to to take the Word and practically applicate it to the children. But it's your job as a woman to wash your children with the word. Not to set them up independently to find washing on their own. People love cult leaders. They want to find someone that does all the washing for them. And children will run to these leaders in other lands to be washed by someone because they're not taking the responsibility given to them by God. God gives the word to the man for the man to wash his wife with the word, for the woman to practically applicate the word in the next generation. You throw that off beat, and you're going to have an emergent church. You certainly will have an emergent marriage. Women are very, very quick to wash themselves with the word. And men just slowly detach when that happens until they disengage God has given us a perfect order from the sacrifice of the male lamb to the washing thereof women are to be protected not set up to be independent functioning on their own with them there's no 50 50 with God there's one there's just one That 50-50 is what is destroying the church. In a sense, the Word of God does not accommodate that. They have to rewrite it to accommodate flesh. And that's what's happening in our world today. Huge problem, folks. You see, if you have the truth in you, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit should discern out instantly if what someone is saying is, is the truth if you're not into the word you're not gonna find out if that person is telling the truth or not so we need to be people of the word following verses in Exodus 12 7 12 and 22 the blood of the sacrificed lamb was applied to the door frame the lintel the side post being 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 because of the covering of blood the house was spared from God's plague the doorway The dilet, the doorway, that board that is above, is the head of the house. And you have the wife, and you have the next generations. All had to be covered with the blood of Jesus. See, in New Testament, Jesus said, "...for you and your household shall be saved." You get that, dop, that top doorpost saved, and your wife is sooner or later going to get saved, and your children's children will be saved. Why do we go after the males first? The, the doorpost on the top. If the husband, the father, is not washing with blood, we have a problem in that household. Verse 14, the Passover was to be kept as a remembrance forever and ever and ever, and it will be forever. People who take communion and they just think that, some crackers and juice and they need some water because of the taste it left in their mouth, I really pray for those type, to be perfectly honest with you. They do not understand the power of holiness within them coming in contact with a symbol that comes with a mandate that says, Do this in remembrance of me, and when that obedience matches the obedience of the Holy Spirit inside you, it's real experience this is the Holy Spirit bearing witness with the command of God, and it will respond in and through you so real experience we're being asked to do finally to speed up Jesus' death, the Roman soldiers as we learned in the Word and in that video clip, they wanted and normally do break the bones, the hip bones, so there's no more support left, and then they quickly die. It speeds up the death process because they got to get home and have their roast dinner. And you know what? My experience with the, of preaching and teaching for 34 years is that's how most people view church. Look, I, This is getting kind of long. I got a roast in the oven. I got a football game. I got a. It's just like. This is this is uh this is beyond my timeline. That's the the age that we live today. The candle in the Old Testament was symbolic of life. So as a reminder, God had the Hebrew mothers be the ones who light the candle. Which is now what we classify as the communion candle. It is that oneness candle that Jesus is referring to. Now that one single flame is the symbol of the one single bridal member. We're all one flame the cool thing about this principle it's a scientific principle is that if someone all of a sudden gets born again and when you apply that born again person to the unity candle you have two flames not you have one flame and someone else gets saved and there's one flame the difference is is the pastor leading is the head of the home leading the body member to the body for oneness. No, we say we can have church at home. We can have church by ourselves. Church doesn't mean whatever. Well, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews were required to forsake not the assembly. Why? It was to set up for new covenant so that all born again Christians, all Christians would come and be one flame. So the candle is the symbol of life. On the Lord's Supper, the lighting of the communion candle is the oneness candle. Jesus said after, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I will tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family integrated fellowships, please log on to our website. That is www heartlandfellowships.org We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a bind a shirt off your back Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus bag